Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Riyaz Shah. I'm a medical oncologist in Kent, and it uh, gives me great pleasure to introduce and chair you through today's webinar. This is a BTOG webinar, and in the next hour, we're going to be doing a deep dive uh, update on mesothelioma. So a few basic housekeeping uh, uh, issues before we get started. I want to officially and formally thank the sponsors of BTOG. Um, it's important to reiterate that they have absolutely no uh, role in the planning, content or delivery of anything you will hear today. Um, BTOG is an excellent organization and I want to um, signpost you to the executive team and the excellent website that has a wealth of information, including um, for members, the ability to look at previous presentations. Uh, and I would implore all those in the audience who are involved in a UK delivery of lung cancer services to seriously consider joining this excellent organization. There are a multitude of webinars, a journal club for juniors, the annual meeting, and now the summer meeting that we're looking forward to in early July. A bit of housekeeping, you have a Q&A button at the bottom, you can send questions. We're going to do three presentations. Uh, do uh, uh, put forward your questions, uh, don't be shy, and um, we will moderate uh, a discussion at the end. Uh, there will be a feedback uh, uh, form which we will email to you and you'll get a certificate of attendance if you uh, submit that at the end and you can get uh, some CPD points for attending today's event. So um, we've got three excellent speakers lined up. Um, the first speaker is going to be Miss Sarah Tenconi. She's a consultant thoracic surgeon in Sheffield, one of the MARS 2 centres, and she's going to give us an outline on the role of uh, surgery. Dr. Crispin Hiley, who's a consultant clinical oncologist at UCLH and UCL, is going to talk about radiotherapy. So we've got a speaker from one of the key mesothelioma surgical centers of the UK, a speaker from one of the key radiotherapy centers in the UK, who've recently got a proton machine, and my colleague and great friend, Professor Sanjay Popout, our chairman, and a key opinion leader in the systemic delivery of treatments for this disease. So we're going to hear from each of them, 15 minutes each, hopefully, and then have a Q&A session at the end. And we hope uh, all being well to close this meeting at 18.30. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Miss Tenconi. Hello, thank you so much for, yes, for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'll try in 15 minutes to condensate all the potential roles that surgery has in mesothelioma. And uh, they do vary quite a lot. They can help just to improve patient symptoms, supporting the important role of the respiratory physician in the diagnosis of this disease, for example. They can have a radical intent when we aim to remove most of the disease. Um, and they can also work together with chemo and radiotherapy and maybe something else um, in trying to improve patient survival. And then I think, well, as you said, uh, with myself, with, with my colleagues, um, John Edwards and Laura Sochi, we've been one of the uh, centers for surgery for the master trial. We've been screening, we've been consenting, we've been operating on patient, and now we're all waiting to see what's going to happen, what the results of the master trial will be. 
So um, the different roles, let's start from the easiest one. As I said, um, the standard really to diagnose mesothelioma could be just a, um, a medical thoracoscopy or a CT guided biopsy, ultrasound biopsy, but sometimes you need bigger samples. Sometimes the patient haven't got enough fluid or the, the pleura is not that thickened. So they can ask for help. And um, so patient can have a VATS um, and VATS is helpful to a thing bigger biopsies, um, and also during the same procedure, we can do often pleurodesis or place an IPC uh, when needed, and I'll explain when. So this is an example. On the left, you see mesothelioma, the tumor is in yellow, and if you see your lung is trapped, we have drained all the fluid, but the lung is not coming up. So what we can do on the right, we can place an indwelling pleural catheter, um, which obviously can be um, treated, used ambulatory by, by the district nurses to evacuate the fluid when it reaccumulates and it helps the patient breathe better. Um, I know this can be done, as I said, even by the respiratory physician, but there are some cases in which um, a, a general anesthetic, a short anesthetic might be a bit more comfortable for the patients. Um, there are other cases in which the meso maybe is a little bit earlier. So you see that the disease burden here, the yellow bit, um, is not as thick as before. So when we finish to take our biopsy and the anesthetist reinflate the lungs, it actually comes out nicely. So what we can do is spray some talc inside the chest. And obviously by keeping the drain on suction for about 48 hours, we keep the visceral and the parietal pleural together, and we try to achieve uh, pleural disease, again, to improve uh, patient symptoms. There has been the MESOVAT study, as you know, which wanted to compare um, a VATS debridement, so an operation, a palliative operation, which we try and remove by VATS, so minimally invasive as much as possible of the cancer, compared to um, a slightly less aggressive approach, which was just a drainage and talc pleural disease. Well, there was great hope about the role of VATS in this, but to be fair, it hasn't showed any advantage in terms of survival. The patient tends to stay in trade a bit longer, seven days against two. So um, really, um, it seems that there's no indication at the minute to offer um, VATS or pleurectomy or decortication to these patients, um, at least not when they can um, get away with the drain and some talc, for example, when the lung re-expands well. However, uh, at six months, it appears that the patient who did have um, the PD done and the VATS um, report a slightly better quality of life. There is an important concept that's been introduced in 2012 about um, surgery for mesothelioma and is the concept of macroscopic complete resection. So if we go in with a radical intent, we need to aim to remove all the visible disease. That means that we accept that whatever operation for mesothelioma will give an R1 result at best, but we need to be able to achieve that macroscopic complete resection. So the big discussion among the surgeons over the past probably 25 years has been what operation is best. And there are two that are currently recognized um, in trying to achieve this kind of result. One is called extrapural pneumonectomy. Again, on the left, you've got your tumor in yellow. On the right, you've got the results of the operation. The parietal pleural is gone, the visceral pleural is gone, the lung is gone, the diaphragm is gone, and the ipsilateral part of the pericardium is also gone. And then obviously they need reconstructing, so we put a patch on where the pericardium was and we put a patch on the diaphragm. Um, this way, obviously, we do remove all um, the visible tumor, but we take away the lung as well. Um, 
There is another way, another operation, which is the favoured one at the moment in the UK, is the one that was performed during the master trial, and it's an operation that tried to save the lung for the patient. So, as again, you see on the left the tumour as it was at the beginning, and then on the right you see the visceral, parietal, pericardium and diaphragm have been removed and replaced with a patch, but the lung is still in place. The advantage in this is that by releasing uh, that cortex on top of the lung and leaving the lung there as well, obviously, um, we believe that we can help the patient um, maintain some of its uh, respiratory function. Obviously, the diaphragm is not going to work, so we need to tell this patient it will take a little while for them to learn to breathe just with the rest of the respiratory muscle, so they learn to breathe differently, but in the end, they've still got their lung. This is just a very brief overview of what at the end results of a radical prolectomy decortication will, will look like. On the left down here, the one that doesn't move, the white one, is the patch on the pericardium. And then on slightly further down, the one that moves is the patch on the, on the pericardium, so on the heart. And then in a minute, you will see um, the lung re-expand and obviously there's a drain. Um, in terms of current trials, unfortunately, I haven't got many results to show you today, but I thought I'll mention these two. And in fact, I will start from the bottom one, which is the SMART trial. It's not a randomized trial. It was a phase two observational study. They complete the enrollment though. They enrolled 96 patients and they randomized them to two different groups to try and establish the better timing for multimodality treatment, which in this case involved extrapural pneumonectomy, so the whole lung out, and um, CISPEN. And then only in case of uh, um, biopsy proven positive lymph node, the patient were also given um, um, radiotherapy, sorry. So uh, the, basically the primary outcome was feasibility, and they said that the both, both ways, to be fair, were, um, sorry, the, the I'm so sorry. The, the, start, the previous one, the primary outcome was successful completion of treatment, and the secondary outcomes uh, were local regional uh, free survival, uh, overall survival, and treatment side effects. Um, the enrollment has been completed, as I said, um, but the follow up is still ongoing. At least this is what they reported on the 1st of April. So um, hopefully by the end of next year, because the primary outcome follow up was only six months, we will know whether it's best to do chemotherapy first or surgery up front. The second one instead is a, is a big study from the north of America in which they basically give to all patients a, a five-day course of radiotherapy, 25 gray, and then they perform extrapural pneumonectomy within seven days on an average on day five, and then only in patients with uh, no positive proven disease, um, they added chemotherapy. Uh, and this one, again, has been completed. Um, it wasn't a randomized study. And um, you can see that it was feasible because the mortality was very similar to the one reported in other studies. They did have some grade three and four events, and they said they need to do something to try and, and control that. Um, but um, overall, the, the cumulative incidence of distant recurrence was 62 patients in five years, which is just about 70%. And again, it's similar to what was reported earlier. 
There is something else that was in fashion in the past, has gone a little bit down, but this uh, original research was published just in February this year, I think is a very good reading and actually asked the question on whether intracavitary chemotherapy uh, performed during the surgery should be back um, in vogue. Um, so basically, um, we know that using hypothermic chemotherapy in the peritoneum has improved survival in, in some um, disseminated cancers, but can it work for mesothelioma? So there was a systematic review of 15 uh, prospective studies, which included nearly 600 patients. Um, most of them had uh, APD, so rectal medicortication as an operation, but some of them at APP, especially the older one, and they were all followed by hyperthermic intrathoracic chemotherapy. Uh, the chemotherapy was mainly cisplatinarone with some variability in, I think, five studies, and it did show a low mortality when compared to control groups. The main complication were atrium fibrillation and um, AKI, however, all patients underwent hydration protocols and nephroprotective agents were used. So this is something that, again, we can work on. The better results were with patients received at least 175 milligram per meter square of uh, cisplatin, but again, uh, the dose can vary. And um, so the author's conclusion is that high tech seems to be safe. They should be considered in addition to microscopic complete resection surgery. But obviously, they advocate for randomized controlled trials. However, the ASCO has already introduced this, um, recommending the use in very selected um, centers. And it's something that probably we should start, we could start thinking about as well. And we come to uh, MARS2. What's happening with MARS2? As you know, the um, enrollment is finished. We have recruited, I just scheduled for most of the time, obviously, then we had to slow down a bit because of COVID, but we only stopped recruiting for a few months. So we're back on track. 335 patients randomized. Probably the um, follow-up will have to be extended a little bit. So that was the original plan, January 2023, uh, for the final report um, that probably will be uh, delayed slightly. So in the meantime, what can we do? I did a mini survey just for the purpose of this uh, uh, of this presentation in the five uh, surgical mass centres, as you see, there's two in London, it's Glasgow, Leicester and Sheffield. All the surgeons there, um, and this is a conversation obviously we had at the end of randomisation, um, are still offering um, surgery. We, what to do, which protocol to use? There's, um, there's some variation there. Some centers carry on with the MARS2 protocol. Uh, some centers went back to upfront surgery for very selected patients with early disease, epithelioid uh, subtype, and node negative. Um, so uh, also the um, inclusion criteria can vary because as you know, the one for MARS2 were quite wide. They, had, they seem to have been narrowed in all the centers at this stage. But what I found quite interesting is um, to make sure that you pick the very early disease that you routinely stage in the mediastinum. And interestingly, a couple of centers have already started to use a PET scan to define the actual stage. So what can happen in the future? I think we have obviously two possibilities. MARS-1 is negative. So the hypothesis that we can add 30% of survival with the surgery compared to chemotherapy alone is, uh, is null. Well, 
Again, probably the inclusion criteria will be questioned because they are really wide. They included um, basically all subtypes with very, very little um, limit in terms of age. So we, we will need to do some subgroup analysis to pick up um, the best actors. And obviously the treatment protocol can be questions and will be questions uh, because we still don't know whether induction chemotherapy is the right thing to do, plus the patient had two. Uh, cycles of induction chemo, where normally you will probably have three. So it will raise a lot of questions. If it is positive instead, well, probably the number of questions won't be any smaller because uh, are we going to offer them surgery as part of the treatment for all patients or are we, do we still need to identify um, the best actors? Also, what's going to happen in terms of delivering of MIS surgery? Uh, we can obviously roll out um, surgery for everybody with only five centres, so we'll need more centres, we'll need to train more surgeons. And will the MDT um, be able to discuss and make this decision in district generals like it happens for lung cancer at the minute? Or do we need to centralise everything and keep uh, some few very busy MISO-MDT with specialist surgeons in? And obviously there's a massive elephant in this room uh, because there's still new things coming. So in the future, are we going to plan mastery regardless of the results and what we're going to include in it? There's immunotherapy, obviously. I think that's the biggest elephant that we've got in the room and hopefully we'll hear a little bit more later from Sanjay about that. Um, are we going to include radiotherapy? And again, Dr. Hiley is going to tell something about that. And there are studies as well that have already included it. And then also, as I mentioned, maybe hypothermic chemotherapy could play a role in selected centres. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was brilliant. Can I just remind the audience to use the Q&A button to ask any questions? Um, they'll come on a stream and we'll try and go through them at the end of the talk. I'm now going to move on to my colleague, uh, Dr. Crispin Hiley from UCLH UCL. Hi there. Um, so thanks very much uh, for inviting me to take participate in this uh, mesothelium essential update. Um, my name is Crispin Hiley. I'm a uh, consultant clinical oncologist at UCL and UCLH, and I'm going to talk about the evidence base for radiotherapy. So just a, a very brief bit of background. So nearly 7,000 patients were diagnosed with pleural mesothelioma in the UK in the last Royal College of Physicians audit period, which was 2016 to 2018. And from that audit, only about 15% of patients actually receive radiotherapy in the UK, and that, and that is generally palliative radiotherapy. So 20 gray in five fractions or eight gray in a single fraction, which are standard palliative doses for symptoms, predominantly pain. Um, and so from that audit, the recommendation obviously is that palliative radiotherapy should be considered for um, symptom control, including localized pain in malignant plus mesothelioma, where the uh, pain distribution matches the underlying areas of disease. Uh, but as you can see, obviously, from the outcome data that you know outcomes are poor and we need to think about how we can use all our treatment, surgery, radiotherapy, systemic treatments to, um, to uh, improve outcomes for, for patients. 
So I was wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, sort of radiation sensitivity of mesothelioma, and it's classically being considered a radiation resistant tumor. But actually, if you look at what the preclinical evidence is for this, that's actually not the case. Um, there's certainly some. There's not much data out there, um, but a lot of the older data suggests that it's probably of a similar radio sensitivity to non-small cell lung cancer. And this is a, a nice paper from a, a colleague of, of mine in the, the US, Mohammed Abazid, um, where he took uh, 250 different cell lines from different of different tumor types and irradiated them. Uh, and really, just for simplicity, if you look at the the integrated survival D, so the y-axis, the higher the number towards seven, the more resistant that tumor is. And the, uh, the lower the number towards zero, the more sensitive it is. And you can see um, there's a, obviously a breadth of radio sensitivity for different uh, um, cell lines from, of, from different tumor types. And, and we probably agree with a lot of the things here, high-grade gliomas being, being um, quite uh, radiation resistant. And although it's not on the actual um, figure that was in the paper, I went back and looked at some of the, the supplementary data and um, plotted that here just, just so we can all see. These are the seven cell lines that were included that were mesothelioma cell lines. And you can see there's a similar distribution of radiation sensitivity. And, and actually, when you look at the median radiation sensitivity, it's very similar to the, to the overall median um, of, of all the cell lines. So I think it's, it's likely that genomics and the, and the tumor microenvironment def defines radio sensitivity and not, not histology specifically. I think the real problem for mesothelioma in terms of radiation treatment is the, is the tumor volume um, and how difficult it is to sort of irradiate all of that volume. Uh, next slide, please. So um, what is the evidence? What evidence is there? So I'm going to talk to you about prophylactic intervention site radiotherapy or PORT. I'll talk to you about uh, palliative radiotherapy. And I'm also going to talk to you about radical hemithoracic radiotherapy, both in the post-extended pleurectomy decortication setting, but also in the in the radical setting for patients who who don't have surgery. Uh, and, and that's not something that we we do commonly in the UK. So um, ports, um, prophylactic intervention site radiotherapy. So this is something I did commonly when I was uh, training. So 21 gray in three fractions using an electron field. Uh, to reduce the incidence of procedure tract metastasis or PTM uh, after patients have had a biopsy. Um, and uh, that was something we did commonly until uh, the SMART trial was published. So this is a UK-led study uh, where patients had immediate or deferred uh, port uh, to over 200 patients. And the primary endpoint uh, was the incidence of uh, PTM within uh, 12 months. Um, and the intention to treat analysis uh, showed a numerical but not a statistically significant um, uh, reduction in, in, in PTMs. And you can see here the, the, the odds ratio was 0.51, but it crosses, um, crosses one, and also the, the, um, the p-value was not uh, significant. Uh, next slide, please. So you can see here that, uh, again, this is from the paper. Um, again, you know, there is a suggestion of a numerical um, difference but actually a subsequent meta-analysis was also published that included five similar studies which all confirmed uh, which confirmed the lack of benefit so this isn't something that we do now uh, uh, routinely um, in the UK so palliative radiotherapy so this I think is can be helpful for patients with symptomatic disease again 
you know, UK-led evidence base. So uh, Systems 1, or Systems at the time, was the original study published in 2015. This is a, uh, a phase two study um, of 40 patients, uh, 20 gray in, in five fractions, so a very standard palliative dose. And um, the endpoint really was a clinically meaningful improvement in pain at five weeks using a, a commonly used pain inventory score. Uh, and they showed that this was improved in um, 14 uh, of the patients. Next slide, please. So this led to the Systems 2 study. So this is led by Anthony Chalmers in Glasgow. Um, it's a UK study. It's currently open in over um, 18 centres in the UK. Uh, this is a randomized study, so patients are randomized to 36 gray in six fractions, so a you know, high-dose, hyperfractionated um, regime. Um, or the standard sort of 20 gray in five fractions uh, that's currently used. Uh, the, now, the dislike difference is the patients are, uh, have a proper plan, so intensely modulated radiotherapy or 3D planned. And again, the endpoint is clinically meaningful improvement in pain at five weeks post-radiotherapy. And actually, it's great to hear um, that this is sort of nearly completed recruitment. So we're currently at 104 out of 112 patients uh, recruited in the UK. And again, just to, to show you an example of, of the sort of uh, um, volume you're treating in this sort of circumstances, it's an example of a patient treated by a colleague of mine at UCLH, who's the principal investigator uh, at our centre. And you can see here a patient with mesothelioma who's having an area of uh, a, a disease treated with radiotherapy where they have pain. And often we'll, we'll um, ask the patient when they come for treatment where the pain is, we'll put external wires on the, on the skin that we can see during the CT planning so that we can help guide us about where that, that radiotherapy field should be. So that's palliative radiotherapy, um, but I wanted to talk to you now about hemithoracic radiotherapy. Um, so I said at the start, this is not something that we commonly do in the UK. Um, it's a very large target volume. So this is a, um, a graphical representation on the right, courtesy of, a, a, again, a colleague in, in Italy, Marco Trevo. And if you look at the sort of the red area, that's the area that you're trying to treat with radiotherapy. So this is, this is really quite a big volume. This is you know, probably the sort of biggest volume we try and treat um, in adult patients in, 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 um, in radiation oncology. And, you know, you're trying to treat to a high dose, so over 50 gray. And the challenge is really the, the close proximity of, of, you know, important organs at risk or OAR. So things like the heart, um, the contralateral lung, spinal cord, esophagus. Um, and you really have to, 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 to um, uh, balance, uh, you know, covering the target with radiotherapy and, and, and minimizing uh, the dose to those organs at risk to stay within uh, safe, acceptable uh, levels of toxicity. So Mr. Coney's obviously already talked about some other studies. I'm, I'm going to talk to you specifically about um, uh, uh, hemithoracic radiotherapy following um, uh, extended pleurectomy and decortication. So, uh, and these are studies run by Andreas Rimner um, in the US. So the imprint phase two study uh, was a trial that had, um, again, a single arm study. Um, an endpoint was grade three pneumonitis. Uh, and the schedule really was platinum-based chemotherapy, followed by surgery, followed by hemithoracic radiotherapy. And again, on the right an example, is an example of the dose distribution um, that you, you need to achieve really for, for this sort of treatment. And you can see how, how large it is, going right from the apex of the lung all the way down um, to the bottom uh, of, of where the pleura, pleura it potentially can be. 
And again, 50 gray, 50.4 gray in 28 fractions using IMRT. And, you know, this is, this requires patients to be you know, quite fit. Um, in, in this study, only 40, sorry, 45 patients were enrolled, but only 27 patients got all the way through to receive radiotherapy. So, so I think this is a, this is, you know, undoubtedly a, a challenging treatment to deliver. Um, uh, but I think, you know, clearly, you know, pending the results on the, on um, the, the Mars two study is something that we, um, we might need to think about, uh, more closely. So that phase two study led to the, um, the uh, sort of imprint um, phase three study. So this is the only sort of NRG US study in mesothelioma, so NRG LU006. Uh, and this is a randomized study. So patients, as you can see here, the eligibility criteria, uh, they have um, chemotherapy first, although new, um, so they have um, surgery first, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy, and then they're randomized to uh, radiotherapy or no radiotherapy. Um, and the primary endpoint is able survival. Um, you know, they recognize here that the radiotherapy is challenging. So the central review of all those radiotherapy plans and the target recruitment is 150 patients. Um, note here that they do allow um, things to be the other way around. They allow new adjuvant chemotherapy and um, followed by surgery. And, also actually, and they also allow uh, proton therapy um, to be the, the radiotherapy modality of choice. And I'll, I'll speak about that uh, a little later. So what about in the context of uh, without surgery, patients who have you know, a biopsy only? Uh, so this is a, um, a, there was a study published by Marco Trevo um, in the Red Journal um, uh, last year, a really nice study. So this, is a, this was a single center, but a randomized phase three study of over 100 patients uh, using a radiotherapy modality called tomotherapy, which is something we don't have much in the UK anymore. It, it, it um, has some benefits in, it, in that it allows you to treat sort of relatively long volumes and and obviously the whole hemithorax is quite a long volume for radiotherapy. So patients had 50 grain, 25 fractions um, with a boost to, to 60 grain to, the, to, to res any residual tumor. And that was defined using, using a PET scan. And actually, as you can see here from the Kaplan-Marsic um, curves on the right, there was quite a significant improvement in overall survival compared to palliative radiotherapy alone. Uh, and, and obviously significant improvement in, in local uh, regional recurrence at, um, at one year. However, what's the problem is that even with the disabled survival benefit, uh, there was still quite a significant grade three to grade five event rate in this study. So obviously, unfortunately, patients died following treatment. And also a significant, you know, very high burden of grade two toxicities, which you know, may well have a significant uh, impact on, on quality of life. So what are the alternatives? So uh, Riaz kindly mentioned about proton therapy. So um, there are some dosimetric benefits for proton therapy to allow sparing of organs at risk. Uh, on the right is the classic um, um, dose distribution curves for standard photon beams, so conventional radiotherapy, um, as well as sort of proton beams and, and how we use proton beams to create modified uh, spread out Bragg peaks, so the blue line. And, and what this really means, perhaps you can see, is that um, you get a less ex less entry dose with protons and significantly less exit dose compared to photons, and this allows you to uh, spare um, you know organs at risk that in close proximity, particularly things like the contralateral lung and the heart, which may have a big impact on toxicity and outcome. 
Um, this improvement in dose distribution can also make it easier to escalate the dose to the GTV, so the growth show any residual tumour there. So, you know, you might not be able to do that with photons or conventional radiotherapy, but you, you could potentially do that with, with protons. And, um, and there's several uh, planning studies have been published and, and, uh, and several state centres in the US have published sort of single centre experiences where they've, they've used um, uh, protons in this context. But, but as you know, um, it, we've now got two proton centres in the UK, one at, one at the Christie and one at UCLH. And, um, and um, there are, there's some evidence to suggest that if we're doing this sort of large um, radical hemithoracic uh, radiotherapy fields, that we should be using proton therapy. So there's a couple of consensus statements that have been published um, um, from you know, experts in the field, opinion leaders, but also ratified by, by um, the IASLC and, and, and other groups, essentially saying that um, you know, there's a clear dosimetric benefit for proton therapy, and this is something that we should consider using in, in future. Uh, next slide, please. So I guess this is where I have to, um, you know, another uh, perhaps conflict. So, so obviously I'm uh, a radiation oncologist and I'm interested in using protons. Uh, and so we've submitted this study for funding to asthma and lung UK. We, we don't know what the outcome will be, um, but hopefully, you know, if we're successful, this is a trial we can open and lead from the UK. So this is the trial of radical hemithoracic radiotherapy for patients with, um, you know, mesothelioma. Primary endpoint is overall survival, um, looking to recruit from over 20 centres in the UK. Um, so be um, looking for, for, for people to participate, 148 patients, and, uh, and, I'm, and I've helped um, set up this study in combination with other colleagues across the UK, Paul Shaw in Cardiff and, and David Wolfe in, in Manchester. And patients will um, have uh, initial uh, systemically administered chemotherapy um, if, they, if, they, if it's appropriate for them, and then be randomised to um, either the, the standard of care it may be observation um, or the experimental arm, which is proton beam therapy to a dose of 50 gray and 25 fractions of hemithorax with a boost to 60s. So again, the same fractionation used in the Marco Trovo um, single center phase three study, but just using protons. Next slide, please. And I just wanted to show an example um, quickly, really, um, about, you know, the, the some, about protons. Um, there's a learning curve with using protons. And so, you know, in, in, in anticipation that we may get funding for this study, we've been working on, on planning a few cases uh, with protons. And you can see on the left um, is, a, is a proton uh, plan. Uh, and on the right is the photon plan, so the conventional ready therapy for the same patient. And, you know, I've set the color wash at the, 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 um, uh, the um, 20 gray mark. So this is that's an important constraint for lung toxicity. And you can see, that um, certainly for the contralateral lung, for the liver, for the ipsilateral kidney, uh, there's a significant improvement in, in dose distribution. And, and the graph at the top is what we call the dose volume histogram. Uh, and really, if, the take, if you just try and take away from that, that um, for the lines that are the same color, which one is being the photons, one being protons, uh, conventional photons being the triangles and, and, and the proton plan being the squares, that actually the, 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 square, the lines with squares are, almost, are, are much lower, showing that actually we get significantly uh, much better dose distribution uh, to the kidneys, the heart, the lung, uh, and the liver. And, and that's important, not just from toxicity, but also important in, in terms of thinking about what subsequent pa uh, treatments those patients um, might need and preserving um, organ function. Next slide, please. 
So in summary, uh, there's a significant unmet need for patients with uh, mesothelioma, which is obviously why we're all here. There's still a big role for radiotherapy in tandem with, with surgery and systemic treatment. Um, palliative radiotherapy offers uh, effective symptom control, and there is evidence to show improved overall survival seen with uh, conventional photon hemithoracic radiotherapy, but this does come with uh, significant toxicity, and perhaps you know, protons may be better, but we need randomized evidence for that. Uh, and thanks very much for your attention. Brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Crispin. I now want to move to Professor Sanjay Popat, who's going to update us on the latest in systemic therapies in mesothelioma. Great. Thank you, Riaz. Um, so these are my disclosures. Um, I'm going to try and keep this quick. So there's a few things that you need to know about uh, updates in mesothelioma. The first is there's been a big reorganization of pathology. And this may or may not impact on your decision making in terms of how you manage your patients, of course, which will involve drug therapy. So four main outcomes of the new WHO 2021 um, classification update, which are summarized in this beautiful summary in the JTO uh, published recently. Number one, well-differentiated papillary mesothelioma is now called a mesothelial tumor. It's a low-grade tumor, probably needs to be resected or in an elderly patient's untreated certainly doesn't need chemotherapy and the role of checkpoint inhibitors is unknown. Number two, mesothelioma in situ has now been defined as a pathological diagnosis, probably should be treated with surgery, may need chemotherapy, unsure whether immunotherapy has a role to play in this disease, probably does. Number three, epithelial mesothelioma should now be graded high and low grade by the nuclear atypia that's identified uh, by the pathologist. And this will probably help determine prognosis and will probably help determine your systemic therapy because you're going to get more out of your high-grade tumors uh, with chemotherapy than your low-grade tumors. And you're probably going to get more out of your low-grade tumors with immunotherapy than your high-grade tumors. It needs to be tested, but if you don't collect the data, you'll never find out. Fourth thing, the um, phrasing and recommendations on how you classify a non-epithelioid tumor has changed. So it's a little bit easier to call it a biphasic tumor now. That may be uh, impactful depending on where we're going with immunotherapy usage. So what are we doing in the first line setting for patients in terms of our systemic therapy options? So uh, we have now the updated 2022 ESMO mesothelioma clinical practice guidelines. And this says that if you're not thinking about surgery for your patient for a variety of reasons, then you should really be thinking about either chemotherapy with cisplatin pemetrexid or carboplatin pemetrexid uh, or nivolumab, ipilimumab, and both have got uh, high grading. I would personally uh, suggest you think about uh, doublet uh, immunotherapy as the preferred modality of choice. And this is based on the Checkmate 743 trial, which is an international multicenter randomized phase three trial in which patients all with um, uh, mesothelioma that was determined to be unresectable randomized either the standard chemotherapy, cisplatin or carboplatin with pemetrexid for a total of six cycles or nivolumab with low dose ipilimumab every six weeks uh, that's one milligram per kilogram up to a total of two years. Now, all types of mesothelioma were eligible and the primary endpoint of the study was overall survival. And you can see that the primary endpoint was met with a consistent uh, performance of immunotherapy uh, with a median progression free, uh, median overall survival of 18.1 months, which is consistent with epithelioid and non-epithelioid subtypes. All you can see is that chemotherapy has modest efficacy in non-epithelioids making the difference really quite uh, important. This study 
was not designed to tell you which uh, subtype you can give because it's not powered to give you a benefit by subtype. What you can see when you look at the quality of life data is that the quality of life uh, measured by the LCS, LCSS mesothelioma ABSI uh, subscale uh, continues to improve with immunotherapy in the non-epithelioid and it stays pretty flat in the non-epithelioid for chemotherapy. However, in the epithelioid, the quality of life actually tends toward deterioration with chemotherapy, where it, it clearly improves with immunotherapy. And for me, this is one of the most underlying important facets for why uh, checkpoint inhibitors should now be considered standard of care over chemotherapy. What else have we learned from uh, Checkmate 743? Uh, well, patients could have carbo or cisplatin. The overall survival is exactly the same. So from my viewpoint, why on earth would you now give cisplatin to your patients with mesothelioma? Uh, the other thing that we've learned is that, uh, that in some patients, progression-free survival was slightly inferior for the first seven months uh, for checkpoint inhibitors than it was for chemotherapy. Now, this has an important role if you're going to think about using that as induction prior to surgery, which you shouldn't be because the uh, guidelines all recommend chemotherapy around surgery. Uh, but clearly, uh, what we need to think about is who are this group of patients? Are these the symptomatic patients? Does it really matter if they're clinically benefiting? Certainly the long-term progression-free survival is really quite uh, important with this group of patients. We've now had the three-year su uh, survival update. And when you look at progression-free survival at uh, the three-year time point, it's 14.1 months that are progression-free with checkpoint inhibitors compared to zero patients with uh, chemotherapy. And we are looking forward to presenting the four-year data in due course. What about side effects? Yes, there are more side effects and adverse events with chemo uh, immunotherapy than with chemotherapy. So you have to think about patient selection appropriately uh, and be able to manage the adverse events uh, appropriately. And I think all oncologists that use these drugs uh, are aware of that. But if, you, if your patients do get um, toxicities, you need not panic because when we went back to look at the um, adverse event outcomes, those patients that developed treatment-related adverse events leading to discontinuation actually had a better overall survival than those uh, that didn't. And we've seen this across different tumor types. So what do you do after, um, after Nevo Ipi? Well, you'd probably then want to go back to your old-fashioned platinum uh, pemetrexid, but the guidelines have now incorporated maintenance gemcitabine as an option. And this is on the basis of the NVALT uh, 19 study, which demonstrated giving maintenance um, gemcitabine after completion of platinum doublet chemotherapy leads to PFS uh, benefit, particularly in the epithelioid group, not the biphasic or sarcomatoid group, but no overall survival benefit. So this may well be suitable for some patients, not all patients, but I would certainly consider it in patients con um, uh, completing six cycles of uh, chemotherapy. So where are we going with uh, frontline treatments with uh, mesothelioma outside the operable space? Well, there are three big trials which are going to report either at the end of this year or more likely at the end of next year. These are the French-Canadian NCTC uh, trial, uh, which has combined chemotherapy with single-agent immunotherapy, pembrolizumab. There's the DREAMER trial, which is recruiting a bit slower, combining chemotherapy with single-agent immunotherapy to develop, and there's the BEAT-MESO trial, which has now completed accrual, which is combining chemotherapy with immunotherapy together with bevacizumab uh, with a dual 
uh, agent. Now, will these trials improve the PFS? Probably yes. Will they be able to beat doublet immunotherapy? Who knows? And I guess this is the key issue. We certainly know that double immunotherapy is better than single immunotherapy, probably in the relapse setting. So will we see this in the frontline setting? Well, you know, this is interesting. Let's see where we go. Other trials that we'll be reporting, hopefully sometime later this year, maybe early next year, will be Peter Schroeder's atomic study. This, if you remember, randomized biphasic sarcomatoid uh, patients with ASS1, which was low to either uh, chemotherapy with pem uh, pemetrexid and cisplatin. Well, we know how that's going to perform from the Checkmate 743 arm, or that together with ADI PEG20. Uh, Let's see uh, what the results are and if they compare anyway. Uh, uh, to Checkmate 743. Postoperatively, Sarah will be delighted to know our Italian colleagues are looking at the role of immunotherapy in a large uh, trial. This is the Atiza Miso trial, which is being run by Italian colleagues. Patients have upfront surgery, they then have four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy, and then at the end of the chemotherapy, if fit and well, are randomized to either placebo for a year or adjuvant immunotherapy for a year. Primary endpoint is disease-free survival, and it's really a very important study that we need to get data for. Now, uh, our patients will sadly probably relapse uh, at some point through all of these options, and we're then thinking about second-line treatment options. Guidelines will recommend single-agent chemotherapy, and if they've not experienced it before, uh, they could have single-agent immunotherapy, either nivolumab or pembrolizumab. Currently, we have nivolumab uh, available. I'm afraid this has not been formatted uh, according to my specifications, so a note to the tech team to get it right next time, please. So what this study is, what this um, is, uh, slide is meant to show is that the performance of immune checkpoint inhibitor, whether you're giving pembrolizumab or nivolumab, is exactly the same. It doesn't really matter. We have nivolumab available, but the bottom line is the performance of uh, checkpoint inhibitors are really not very good uh, in the second line setting. So don't wait to the second line setting to give you a checkpoint inhibitor. Give it up front. And we see exactly the same in lung cancer, so no surprise uh, there. What about experimental treatments coming through? So there are a number of experimental treatments coming through. We wrote this paper with Tim Yap and Dean Fennell a while ago, uh, talking about stratified tr uh, drug therapy for mesothelioma, and we're starting to see this occurring. Dean has been leading the MIST study uh, in Leicester, Newcastle, and a few other places, and most of the trial arms are closed. He's recruited patients to recaparib uh, with BAC1 or BRCA loss and demonstrated a modest benefit in those patients. Uh, he's proposing a trial called NERO, where patients uh, in the relapsed uh, setting are randomized either to single agent, um, um, sorry, the frontline setting are, are randomized to either chemo or immunotherapy or in the experimental arm, chemo followed by neuraparib, uh, which is uh, reasonable for this uh, group. He's looked at the um, CDKN to a loss group of patients, treated them with abemocyclib, demonstrated some uh, evidence of benefit. He's presenting the VEGF PDL1 data at ASCO uh, later this year, and um, sorry, he will be uh, recruiting uh, to a uh, PARP inhibitor PD1 combination arm in patients with a uh, DNA damage uh, uh, repair uh, molecular profile. Uh, a few other interesting trials going on. The um, Spanish have a trial of Bintrophus alpha, which is a fusion protein of PD-1 and TGF-beta, uh, which is ongoing. And there is a uh, phase one trial ongoing in various places 
of the PRMT5 inhibitor for patients with CDKN2A deleted cancers. Um, MTAP testing is now on the National Cancer Test Directory for mesothelioma, so make sure you can get your patient's profiles. Uh, and there's a phase one trial ongoing of patients with NF2 mutation or loss of the HIPAA pathway inhibitor from Novartis IAG933. So this does remind me that NTRAC testing is available for your patients, so do make sure you get your patients NTRAC tested and you'll probably get the rest of the NGS profile thrown in for free if your GLH is feeling uh, lucky. And with that, I'll thank you and hand back to our host for the rest of the meeting. Brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Sanjay. That was excellent. So if all our speakers could uh, unmute and switch their cameras back on, we're going to have a little uh, discussion uh, in the final sort of 10, 11 minutes that are left. I want to thank you all. I think the audience should appreciate just how leading the UK is in the international mesothelioma research market. Here we have had a series of three talks. We're leading in surgical trials, radiotherapy trials, and systemic chemo trials, one of the lead recruiters to beat meso. So fantastic effort to everybody. So I'm gonna go through a few questions. So um, first question to Sarah um, from Professor Lim, no less. If the MARS-2 trial is negative, what surgical treatment options need to be evaluated next? Well, that, that is a very good question. I think we need to be creative then. Um, I don't think we can make up a different operation. What was it? We evaluated the VATS-PD, we evaluated EPP, we evaluated EP, EPD as well. Um, I think it would be more um, which combination surgery needs to be put into um, as part of a multimodality treatment to make it more effective. Um, but Yes, I think the problem is the the, the time is the, the clock is ticking, and obviously our patients are becoming less and less well. So one of the um, one of the reason to move from an EPP into an EPD is as approach, especially in the UK, is, is exactly that. that the patients are getting older and unfit. So I think the more we go on, probably the less aggressive we need to be. Um, in terms of, uh, we will be able to be really in terms of surgical approach. Thank you. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Sarah, was about these IPCs. So in your centre, when an IPC is inserted, how often are they drained in the community? Um, there seems to be a lot of sort of um, differences in practice. And is there a risk if these IPCs stay in too long that the patient may develop an empyema or some other complication? Um, yes, there is obviously for every every long term uh, foreign body, uh, there is always a risk of infection. There's no doubt about that. Usually, uh, most of the IPC, well, we've got brilliant physicians that are inserted by the respiratory physician. When we when we put them just as an additional thing at the end of the procedure of the biopsy, they then um, uh, are managed by the district nurses um, quite well. Um, it depends uh, the amount of fluid they are draining, but it, it seems like with time they tend to drain less and less. So initially, money three times a week, and then it's twice a week. And again, uh, because every time that you um, do whatever maneuver on that, there is a risk of, of of infection. You should really try and and minimize, and it should be more patient led. So when the patient feels, sometimes the patient themselves learn how to do it. So when they feel that the breathing is um, is getting worse, um, they know how to how to drain it um, in order to get in order to get some relief. And then a uh, few questions for Crispin. Crispin, um, 
50 grain, 25 fractions of proton therapy. If you're a patient walking into UCL and you're about to have one of these 25 fractions, how long are you going to be on the machine for having that treatment? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I think obviously as we start treating patients, you know, on these proton beams, the, the, the treatments at times have been longer. As we're getting more comfortable treating patients on the proton beam, they're shorter. But, you know, you're going to be in the room having treatment for, for half an hour. I mean, the beam on time will be, be much significantly less than that. But I say to all patients, you know, you, you've got to think about sort of half an hour, 40 minutes to, to get in the room, lie on the couch, make sure that you're sort of in exactly the right position. Um, uh, and then, you know, the, all the patient has to do is, is lie still um, uh, and they're supported by the radiographers. Any problems, they'll, they'll come in and help them. Um, uh, and, you know, obviously when the radiotherapy is going in, they don't feel anything. It's not painful. It's not, uh, um, you know, radioactive afterwards. Uh, and, you know, I think it's something that would certainly be tolerable by, by patients. And then one of the things you mentioned, the, 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 the port site radiotherapy, prophylactic radiotherapy. So we've, we, we know that treating with radiotherapy helps. One of the things that happens is patients don't often report the lumps as they appear. So the first time you hear of it and it gets mentioned in a clinic room and you, you expose the patient's chest, you see quite a, a frightening mass. Um, would I be right in thinking that these things, when picked up at a smaller size, are more palliatable than if they're larger and that maybe should we be training patients um, uh, to report these things earlier, to look out for them and specifically report them? Yeah, or doesn't no, it make a difference? No, I, th I, I think I think that's a fair comment. I don't think there's any evidence to, to prove that, but I think you know we, we would take that from from all, all you know all situations where where patients have, have you know fungating things that break through the skin. You know, the earlier you can treat it, the better. And you know, we know that for breast cancer lesions, other other tumor types. So I, I think certainly you know if patients have you know clearly things that that, that the pain or lumps that you know around a procedure tract, they should let their on, on, oncologist uh, know about it. Excellent. Thank you very much. Now, uh, a few questions for Sanjay. Um, Sanjay, I got the impression what that you were saying combination doublet immunotherapy, nivolumab and ipilimumab is first line standard of care, uh, systemic treatment for mesothelioma. Uh, you showed us those curves showing really quite substantial benefit in non-epithelioid tumours. Uh, somewhat less obvious in epithelioid. You didn't mention PDL1. Do you think there's any role for PDL1 testing in mesothelioma? Does it have any utility in clinical decision making? And do we even know how to read it, test it, um, and, and have reliable no. results? I'll be very clear here. No, there is no role whatsoever for PDL1 testing in mesothelioma. That's fairly definitive. Um, tell me about. BAP1 testing, what, what is the role? Because increasingly people are getting reports with BAP1 and have, yeah. haven't got a real sense of how to interpret that. What does it mean? Why is it being done? Yeah, BAP1 loss is seen uh, in up to 60% of uh, mesotheliomas and is usually a somatic uh, mutation. So it occurs in their cancer. And BAP1 loss can help a pathologist differentiate between atypical mesothelial proliferation and an invasive mesothelioma when they do not necessarily see invasion of the basement membrane, which is usually required for a pathologist to make a diagnosis of mesothelioma. Um, so that's basically why you're seeing it. It, re it results in altered DNA replication, and there are trials ongoing looking at it as a drug target. 
uh, about 2% of mesothelioma patients have germline mutations in BAP1. That is not routinely commissioned to be tested for in the germline. It should be. Uh, me and others are working in the background to try and make this the case because these patients have inherited family syndromes uh, which predispose to ocular melanomas, renal tumors, etc. So when you see it on your um, path report, it's somatic, it's not really germline, and it helps the pathologist make the diagnosis. Thank you very much. Now, uh, we've had a, a few uh, questions about, well, when is doublet immunotherapy going to be available in our clinics? Um, I don't know if you've got any news on that or any sense yeah. of where yeah. we are with that. It's available now. You just need to um, ring out, uh, uh, contact your uh, BMS liaison and, uh, and ask for a compassionate use supply. Uh, the NHS funding uh, for that is still under negotiation between BMS and uh, uh, NICE. I have no idea where those discussions are. I, like you, hope that they uh, resolve quickly and we have formal uh, access. But and, until then, uh, you know, my view is that there is no other uh, suitable treatment that patients should be getting in a frontline setting if they are trial eligible and suitable to receive this drug. And then I suppose the next question revolves around combining all three of your skills, so surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and do we have any sense? I suppose I suspect that after Mars 2 reports, the next thing we'll be doing is scratching our heads together in a room and trying to think about a multimodality strategy um, and the question is, who, who goes first? And um, do we irradiate a tumour first? Do we shrink it with chemotherapy first? Do we resect it and give adjuvant therapies first? Can I have all your thoughts on what you, what, what's your sense of, of where, how we should sequence multimodality therapy, if that's where we're going to go in the next study? Sarah? Although we are always happy to operate, for example, after chlorodesis, because any form of fibrosis is, is fine, uh, it's good and makes our job easier. If radiotherapy comes in at any point, and, and, and I think that that will, be, will happen at some point, um, as, it, as they are doing in, um, in America, we will have to go immediately after that, because if you leave it for too long, then the fibrosis will be such that the operation will, will be too risky. Um, whether chemotherapy goes before or after, I think uh, we'll have to wait for the results of the, um, the randomised trial that is ongoing um, to have an idea of that. Any thoughts on that issue, Crispin? If you're designing the next UK yeah, study I, and radiotherapy I, is going to be part of it? I, mean, I think the honest answer, Riaz, is, like, is I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I, but I think, you know, clearly uh, there, there's certain ways it could be done. Uh, you know, I think the Mars 2 result will, will help in terms of surgery about how you position, you know, radiotherapy, you know, a bit like the NRGLU006 study, um, you know, in terms of the, you know, the trial that I proposed with proton therapy and, and, and now, you know, potentially we've got, you know, double chemo um, immunotherapy. Um, you know, I think it's very reasonable to do radiotherapy up front uh, and on progression, patients could have, you know, double immunotherapy. That means they get access to all, all the treatments, um, but, you know, both, both radiotherapy and, and chemotherapy. You know, alternatively, um, um, you know, I think, you know, double, double immunotherapy or, you know, up front and, uh, you know, followed by, by radiotherapy on progression, again, is a, is a very reasonable thing to do. I think it will help all of us, you know, uh, when there's clarity from, from NICE about funding and availability in the UK about how we position these, these things. There was a, a large part of my grant application was, was, was really about, you know, what do we do if, if, if immunotherapy becomes standard of care and, and how we position the trial. So I, I think hopefully, hopefully, you know, it's great news that, that, that 
that we've got um, you know great surgical techniques. It's great news that we've got you know pl- um, immunotherapy doublets. You know none of these things are a home run. You know radiotherapy certainly isn't a home run, and I and I and I think you know, hopefully by combining all of these things we can we can really push push up the the, the sort of three and you know five year overall survival. Thank you. Well, we've come to the end of our hour. Um, so I want to uh, thank you all for attending. I hope you found today's meeting useful. Thank BTOG, thank the sponsors, and uh, wish you all a very pleasant evening and bank holiday weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>